On the Record with White House correspondent April Ryan. I'm April Ryan. My friend Chris Matthews has a new book and he's with us. He's talking about Bobby Kennedy. The book's called Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. I'm April Ryan with On the Record. It is an honor to be with my friend, um, Chris Matthews, the host of Hardball, an author, and just someone who um, is enlightened, who likes to shed light on dark spaces. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. April, great, great to be on. Yeah, yeah, we haven't talked in a while. But I want to talk to you about this great new book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. In your book, you talk about Bobby Kennedy as this underdog. You know, he was in the shadow of his brother. Um, His father really didn't pay too much attention to him for political aspirations because it was all about Jack Kennedy. Talk to me about the Bobby Kennedy that we did not see that you found out about in this book. I was trying to find out, April, why he, 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 he cared so much about people in trouble. And here's this rich kid, you know, growing up, surrounded by all these brothers and sisters and seeming to have it all. I mean, really, have it all. Great food, great place to live, great travel, great vacation places, uh, traveled the world. And yet inside that, that very competitive family, he was 5'8", not very tall. His brothers were all strapping, big guys, healthy-looking, strong. And he had to fight his way uh, to, to get his father's attention. His father treated His father called him a runt. Imagine hearing your father call you a runt. And uh, and he and every time Bobby showed any sensitivity for people, any generosity or caring about poor people, his father would just make fun of him and say, "I don't know where he got that from." I couldn't care less. And it was like every instinct the kid had, the father rejected. So I think that really affected his uh, determination to be an athlete, to make the Harvard football team, to become kind of a tough guy. And I think finally he outgrew his father, to be honest about it. He finally became the guy that he was when he was a kid, which is a pretty good guy. So you're saying in that home where he had to compete, he understood the sensitivities uh, for the least of these because he was, in all intents and purposes, the least of these in his home. I, and I think a lot of people always say, well, Bobby changed later. Well, I got, I got a lot of evidence that he was better than that. I mean... He, he was going to the University of Virginia Law School, as an example, and he wanted Ralph Bunch to speak. And all the, all the southern white kids he went to school with were all, oh, we can't have Ralph Bunch come down here. He's African-American. He's the first African-American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But that didn't matter. He's black. And so Bobby writes a letter to the president of the school. He gets them to change the rules. They, they weren't going to have a segregated audience because Bunch, Mr. Bunch, wouldn't even come to a segregated audience. He said, and Bobby, what for him? And I think that was the first real. And there's other indications, like we had a Catholic priest back then that there'd be no salvation unless you're a Catholic. And and Bobby ra- railed against that. He wrote a lot of the uh, paper in Boston. He he wrote an article blaming attacking this priest. His mother was so scared he was going to get in trouble with the church. It ended up the priest gets excommunicated, and Bobby comes out on top. He's looking out for people who aren't Catholic, and he's, uh, he just showed a lot of, um, I think, spirit to, uh, to fight for justice, even as a young, rich kid. So he had this connection by blood to JFK, John F. Kennedy Jr. Now, with that, when did Bobby Kennedy become Bobby Kennedy on his own standing, on his own two feet when it came to working in the black community and being part of the black community, all on his own versus having the residue of his brother's success in the black community? Well, it started with, uh, he got he got some skin in the game uh, back in 1961. He was, um, he was kind of dispassionate, kind of detached about 
the civil dis- dis- disobedience campaign of Dr. Martin Luther King and the Freedom Riders, but he sent his top guy, John Sigenthor, down to Alabama to sort of watch out for the Freedom Riders, and John Lewis and the rest of them, the core guys. And, and some guy, some white guy down south hit a hit uh, Sigenthor over the head with a lead pipe, nearly killed him. He's lying on the ground for a half hour. The cops didn't bother picking him up because he was a northerner. He was troublemaker, even though he's from he was from Tennessee. And uh, and Bobby, according to John Lewis, who was all part of that as a kid, he uh, he said that was when Bobby started to get involved. And then Harry Belafonte said that's when his his heart moved. So it was when he had somebody close to him that got beat up really badly that he uh, in the hospital he began to take an interest. And then fighting the real white southern segregationists, the real bad people down in, uh, in Old Miss, where he had to bring in federal troops finally. And, and, and they realized the hatred that the African Americans are up against. I mean, the real hatred down there, especially down there, not, not just down there, but down there. And he got into the fight, and he, he started to really care about James Meredith. He said, if anybody lays a finger on that guy, shoot him. I mean, it was... <laughs> he got into the fight, and I think... That's when it began. And then he, would, he did something really unusual. Uh, when the Birmingham kids were all getting fire-hosed and dogs were biting them on television and all that, he went out with Belafonte and some labor guys and raised all the money to get those kids out of, out of jail. He had to get the bail money for them. And he started getting involved behind the scenes, and nobody knew about this stuff. He was working with Belafonte and others. And then he, he thought he had good terms with the black community, so he agreed to meet with a bunch of intellectuals led by James Baldwin, and the woman that wrote Raising the Sun and all these smart people up in New York. And there's a young kid in the group that said, I'm not going to go fight, uh, I, yeah, go fight for, uh, Vietnam, in Vietnam. And I have nothing against those people. And Bobby was shaken. He was so shaken after three hours of getting hit by the people, these intellectuals. And then he said, you know what? If I were one of them, I'd be one of them. And he started to think. And a lot of his life, I've discovered, was learning exposing himself to even ridicule and attack from people that he wanted to learn from. And a couple weeks later, he's the guy in the back room, rather than the Oval Office, who tells Jack Kennedy, his brother, you've got to go on national television for civil rights. You've got to come out for this civil rights bill, and you've got to do it now. It's all on tape. This guy, Robert Drew, did it. And Bobby just pushed his brother. And so my theory about Bobby is he had empathy because he let himself be hurt. He let himself be exposed to people who have genuine grievance, and he felt it finally, and he he learned. He was unlike the president we have now. He was willing to learn and, and and to better himself. And I think it was a gradual process. And of course, when his brother died, his whole life turned upside down. And that's when he really knew empathy. He knew what pain was. So you're telling me that Bobby Kennedy was the backbone, was the push for the the issue of civil rights, uh, the Civil Rights Act for his brother. It was him. Bobby. I'm not going to take it away from Jack Kennedy because he had to stick his neck out. But Bobby said, you know, we've got the material for this speech. we got to give it. I'll help you get it ready with Sorensen, the president's speechwriter. And they really pushed him on television that night. I remember the, I got in the book about how Dr. King said that. He said that white man not only hit, a, hit the ball, but he hit it out of the park. I mean, it was the first time a president had ever said, we need civil rights. we got to get rid of all the doors that keeping people from restaurants, hotels, bathrooms, everything. Restrooms at gas stations, all that hell was going on back then. And uh, Bobby had to be taught, but he allowed himself to be taught. I'm April Ryan, and this is On the Record, and we're talking to Chris Matthews with his new book about Bobby Kennedy. 
let's fast forward. Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. They were both assassinated. It was six weeks apart, correct? Yeah, it was April 4th and uh, June, June 4th, yeah. And if both had lived, they would have focused, they vowed to each other to, to focus in on poverty. Not poverty for blacks, but poverty for all America. What would the nation look like if that had worked out of both of them? Well, well I think I think what's missing. Well, I think it was real empathy. I mean, they, they neither one of these guys. Dr. King didn't grow up in poverty either. You know, he he's a middle class guy, well educated. He had some advantages. Middle class in a racist South, though. Yeah, I know, but he had a father who had a, who had some prestige in the community, and he, and he, he was well adjusted. Let's put it that way. He didn't have any personal anger about people, and he and he. Uh, I, I think they were both able to speak to the country in, in a way that Nixon never did, and, and I don't think Humphrey could have done it very well. And Johnson did in his own way, uh, but he was a Southerner too, and he had all the history with carrying on his shoulders. You know, I just think you got to choose all the time. I mean, you know, politically, April in this country, the easiest thing to do is, is take a side on the racial divide and, and hit it hard, and uh, especially the white side because it's the majority of the people. Every time there's an issue of the, of the take and knee, or there's the issue of the statues, the Confederate statues, or even any other kind of culture, so the easiest thing to do is just pick that side and, and, and rub it in and aggravate it. And it works politically for the guy who does it. And I think that's worked. And unfortunately, the guy who, a woman that comes out there and says, you know, let's, uh, as Bobby would say, we have to make an effort. That's what he said the night King was killed. We have to make an effort. Nobody's going to solve the problem. But if we have leaders that make an effort, I think it'd be a totally different country. King and, and Kennedy both made an effort. They weren't gods. They weren't perfect people by any means. But they were. What we don't have is people making an effort. I do. I do think our president enjoys division. I think he gets up in the morning at six thirty and starts tweeting division because it works for his forty percent that he's working for to get reelected. That forty percent he's counting on. That. Uh, that shares a rage that he can exploit. I don't even know if he has any rage personally. I don't even has any feelings about these issues personally. I think he just knows what works for him. Hmm. It's interesting you say, you know, there's really no Bobby, Bobby Kennedy now. And I was going to ask you that prior to this interview, I was going to ask you, who do you see as Bobby Kennedy? But really... Well, nobody, nobody. But there are people that, uh, you know, I, I don't know. They're all, you know, when it happened, April, you and I know what happened. The bench is empty because all the Democrats whatever, man, woman, whatever background, they all thought that Hillary would win for eight years, so why not take a break, take a break, redshirt yourself, as they say in sports, wait for your time to come, and all of a sudden the time's come, and nobody's been ready. Nobody. I mean, you've got people like Kamala Harris thinking, I think, is a, as a, you're not in a long shot, you know, sleeper, maybe somebody can do it. I think Deval Patrick should be thinking about running. Apparently he's not. I think by I know Biden's running. He's a good guy. I think uh, you know the other players like I do. There's Cory Booker. Cory Booker. I don't know if he's ready or not. I want to know more about the guy. I just don't know him very well. I know he presents very well. People like him. Uh, I want to see a little more. But you know him better than I do, probably. He wants to go to dinner sometime. Maybe I'll get to know him that way. I, I was at dinner with that Kamala one time a couple months ago. I'm watching. I'm watching Elizabeth Warren. Watching her, I don't know if she's got enough breath. I don't know if she just talks one issue. Wall Street's enough. I think you got to broaden yourself. And um, you know, he's going to call her Pocahontas and make fun of her, and, and maybe she can 
just throw it back at them. Sometimes it's good to get shot at because then you can shoot back and you get you have permission then. You love the mix-up. You love that mash-up, that match-up and that mosh. You love that mosh pit. <laughs> but listen. No, I don't know if I like it, but I do. I think, you know, P.T. Barnum, a thousand years ago, said if you want a crowd, start a fight, you know, and, the, and people show up for a fight. And uh, I do wish somebody had, Hillary knew how to, she wasn't bad on the stage against him. I'm not part of this theory that she was terrible. She wasn't great as a political figure, but as a, as a spokesperson, somebody up on the stage. But, you know, I think mixing it up with the guy, I mean, Jeb Bush just died in front, he just wilted when he said, oh, low-energy Jeb, and, and little Marco just sweated and sweated, and everybody seemed to get shaken by the guy. They weren't used to this. He came in with gutter politics, and they were used to playing the game how it used to be played for hundreds of years. Now he's totally moved the goalpost and changed the game, and they did not know how to play this gotcha, gutter politics, go below the belt. That's it. True. You're right. What can yeah. I say? You're right. <laughs> Next time around, the person who walks on that stage knows what they're facing. A nickname. They'll get a nickname. They'll get derision. Uh, they'll, they'll verbally spit on them and uh, and keep doing it. And his audience will chuckle. They always laugh at his stupid jokes. They love his stupid jokes. And as corny as they are, as old time and stupid as they are, they get the biggest kick out of it. You know, what about, you know, Rocket Man? We're talking about a guy with nuclear weapons. Kim Jong-un, yes. And he's making fun of the guy over North mm-hmm. Korea. Is that is that smart? I don't think so. So I take it you are not impressed with this president, Donald J. Trump, number 45, uh, with almost a, a year since the election. Well, you know, I think a lot of people... Uh, I thought he said some things in the campaign that I did like. I liked him talking about stupid wars. I mean, that's a new, an odd way of saying it, but... I thought going to Iraq was kill 100,000 people over there, 4,000 of our guys, all these guys, women coming back with legs missing. And for what? A regional danger to maybe Israel, but not really much of a threat to Israel. Israel could have knocked them out with their left hand anytime they needed to. And uh, I don't know who Saddam was saying, why we didn't. So I did like that, but I also like his creating jobs and building stuff. I think the Democrats want to put people back to work instead of whimpering about tax cuts. Why don't they say they're for something? Rebuild this country. Put people to work with high-paying jobs. Put railroads right across the country. I don't know why they don't do it. They're just so scared of being called big spenders when you can borrow money now at like 2%. I don't know why they're not building. They don't, they're don't. they not for stuff anymore, the Democrats, like they were in the old days. Hmm. You know? That's what you know. Well, Chris, there are two things um, I want to ask you before I let you go. Um, And I miss talking to you like this. Oh, my God, we would always be in the green room and just talk. But two things. One thing, you brought up the Confederate statues and and taking the knee. And people always talk about, oh, we're post-racial. We had a black president. Not true. We're now post-Obama, not post-racial. That's my thought. But, and I believe it's true. But here's the piece. And this is a critical piece. And I'm thinking of Bobby Kennedy and how you talked about his his legal prowess, how he was a lawyer and his empathy. When you have laws, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting, Voting Rights Act and Brown v. Board, and things still are not right, where do you go? You have the laws. You have a Bobby Kennedy. But is it about empathy or is it about laws or is it about both? Is it about more heart? Well, look, I think Bobby... Wouldn't have liked taking sides in the uh, in the in the, uh, the Black Lives issue against the police. He would have said law 
and justice can work together. And that he saw it fighting the, the segregationists and fighting the gangsters. He helped me, like Giancana, he's always fighting the mob. He's the first guy to really take him on. So he really believed that he didn't like rioting, of course, who does? And he, he, he was really a skeptic about civil disobedience. So he was more conservative than Dr. King, certainly. But I, I don't know. I think I think the, you're right. The the URA problems we've had, the legal problems, you, you can actually you know you sue people. The courts are on your side in these big fights. Uh, I I don't. I, I wish I knew the answer. I think I think when Doctor when uh, when Obama won the first time, there was a lot of goodwill among white moderates. I know people. I think Peggy Noonan, the conservative commons, voted for. I think Julie Nixon. I know her a little. Surprisingly, sort of upper class white people thought this is the right thing to do, and so there was some of that vote for him, and that faded because they realized he was a Democrat. I think that's what happened. They just said, "This guy's a Democrat, and they're Republicans." They're a centrist Democrat, yeah. And she said, "He's a real Democrat." And uh, you know, I don't know what, how do you do the engagement part. I, I've always, thought, you know, I think if he had been a Southern uh, black guy, a guy who just grew up in the South, his name was Joe brown or roosevelt or some regular american african-american name and he come from a background like his wife like michelle would he have been elected did it take that threading of the needle for him to win to having the white mother the white grandparents having got that immigrant background even from africa it made him be able to connect in all kinds of ways that just a, a regular african-american person would have had a difficult time connecting so I don't know how far we really have come. We wrote, we we reached, we would elect a guy with an exotic name like Barack Hussein Obama. Are we ready to accept a, a Charles Washington or something or a Roosevelt, a regular African American person with an African American familiarity to us? I don't know. I and mean, Cory Booker might test that. Uh, you know, how far have we really gone? I think uh, I do think this. April, this is pure Chris Matthews talking politics. Democratic Party that runs a candidate in 2020 better darn well have either a, a woman on that ticket, a person of color on that ticket, or both. I don't think the Democrats can run two moderate white guys again. I think there needs to be someone from the progressive left, and it needs to be someone of color, and both would be ideal. So I don't know how they put it together or how it comes together, but if a Biden were to win it, even at his age, or somebody of the moderate side like him, he's going to know instinctively he's going to have to bounce that ticket with a woman, a person of color, and certainly, some, certainly someone from the activist left. I just think the party's in that mood right now. Hmm, agreed. Well, Chris, um, wow, this is amazing. And I think that'll help with the black community, I think, because, uh, you know, the problem right now with Hillary did not arouse a lot of enthusiasm in, in Philly. I mean, I heard that was one of the numbers problems she had. She also had problems in the suburbs and certainly in the rural areas. But uh, she lost all those real states. People say, well, she won the popular vote. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But you take away New York and California and you got a country oh, yeah. that's probably going to vote Republican because of real states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan. These are real states. You can't put them away and say, or Florida. They don't count. They do count. And it's just the, the name of the game. As we say in baseball, it doesn't matter how many hits you have, it's how many runs you got. And you got to win in that electoral college. That's the way it is. That's true. Well, Chris Matthews, the author of Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. 50 years ago, Bobby Kennedy was, well, it was over 50 years ago. Bobby Kennedy uh, worked to change America. Chris, what are your last words on Bobby Kennedy uh, as it relates to your book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit? My last words are, 
when Dr. King was killed and Bobby got the word and he knew he was going into a black neighborhood, pretty tough neighborhood in Indianapolis. I don't know what it was like. I've never been there, but the police wouldn't go in with him. They wouldn't. They said, we're not going in tonight. There's going to be trouble. We're not going in with you. And they made him go in alone. And he said, well, I'm going anyway because I got to show up tonight. This is the night I have to show up. I can't dodge this. And he went in there. He didn't give the greatest, you know, it wasn't written by Shakespeare, but he had a lot of emotion in that speech. And you could tell he was making it up as he went along. And what he was was vulnerable. And that means not just letting the police not come with you, but opening yourself up. You're going to make yourself vulnerable to attack, to criticism, to skepticism. You have to make yourself vulnerable. And that's what I think Bobby did. And I think that separates him from all these well-armed, emotionally armed big shots in politics who walk into the room like they're strutting into the community and, oh, thank you, uh, you ought to be glad I came. And I think that attitude of, of entitlement has got to go. It just has to go. Political leaders have got to be humble. That's what I think. Uh-huh. Amazing. And last thing, didn't I tell you when we used to sit on the set of Hardball, Donald Trump could be president? Didn't I tell you? Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure it was a prediction. It was a fear. <laughs> but I tell you, we got to be uh, we got to be aware that uh, working class white people out there they feel disinherited by the Democrats uh-huh. and they're ticked and they're willing to vote for the worst guy in the world to show how angry they are. That they proved it last time. They did it. They voted for a guy that shouldn't be president just to show how ticked off they are about being looked down on by the, the big liberals. And they got to learn a lesson here. They do have to. How true. Words of wisdom from Chris Matthews, author and host. First of all, he's host of Hardball, and he's also the author of this amazing book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. Go get it. Thank you so much, Chris. Much love. Come on back. With this week's On the Record, I'm AURN White House correspondent April Ryan. Don't forget to subscribe to On the Record on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. On the Record, a product of American Urban Radio Networks.